morning. It's the last Sunday of 2012, and uh, there's no place I'd rather be. Um, If you do not know me, my name is uh, Brian. I'm the children and family pastor here. Mike is away, but we'll be back next week to pick up his series in Matthew again, Seven Words for Seven Woes. Um, So that will be great. In the meantime, you are stuck with me. We are in Daniel chapter 2 today, and so you can turn there, Daniel chapter 2, and if you noticed in your bulletin, the title of this sermon is An Oneromancer's Tale, and oneromancy is the interpretation of dreams in order to predict the future. That's what oneromancy is, and so if everything goes south from here, at least you learn something new. And who knows, anyone still looking to declare a major in college? I hear there are exciting opportunities in oneromancy, and so that might be an opportunity for you as well. But it's always fun to jump into the middle of an Old Testament book, and um, it requires maybe a certain amount of certain amount of explanation before we get started. And so Daniel, we're jumping, we're jumping into chapter 2, but this is all taking place right around 605 BC. This is about 20 years before Babylon would destroy Jerusalem entirely. And they've already begun invading under Nebuchadnezzar, who would be king, and in fact is king in the passage we're going to read today, but at the beginning was only a general under his father. He invaded Israel, Judah, actually, and it was generally successful, and he took back some captives, among whom were Daniel and three companions of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are more, who are better known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is how all of them get to Babylon to begin with. So they come back and they are immediately recognized as being intelligent enough and wise enough and, no joke, good-looking enough to make it into this prep school, as it were, the King's Academy. Um, I'm sure even back then the uniform was khaki pants and blue polos, but they uh, put them in school and they learned how to be wise men. That was the point. They were wise men, and in fact, they graduated from this school with flying colors. In uh, the end of chapter 1, it tells us that they were literally ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. So they were doing very, very well. All four of them. And that is what brings us to the beginning of Daniel chapter 2 and our passage today. Now, this passage is going really to play out like a three-act drama, a three-act play. And the purpose of all of it is to show that God is a revealer of mysteries. He's faithful and in control. That's what this is going to be entirely about, but we're going to read just the first act right now, and we'll talk about that, and then we'll move through the rest of the acts. I can't give away the ending, right? Um, And so if you would, stand with me, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 2, just verses 1 through 13 right now, but we'll get through verse 30 by the end of the day. Daniel chapter 2, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to them, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. Make the dream known to me. There, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would illuminate it to us this morning by your spirit, God, and that you would make us understand you better. Father, that you would make us more like Jesus Christ. We pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So Daniel and his companions had just graduated from school, and this was the second year that Nebuchadnezzar was king. He had just taken over for his father, and we get into it right away. In verse 1, it explains the situation almost entirely. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. I don't know if you can relate with this, with a lack of sleep. Some of you might have trouble getting to sleep every night. Some of you might wake up multiple times in the night. I know people who are like that. Um, not, not me. I am, a, I am a superhero when it comes to sleeping through anything. That is a superpower of mine. But some of you might be able to, might, might feel for Nebuchadnezzar. He's having these dreams. Strange visions are coming to him in them. We find out what these dreams are, in fact, at the end of this chapter. We're not going to talk about his actual dream today, but we find out that he's seeing this very strange statue taunting him. It's got a gold head, silver arms, a bronze chest, iron legs, and feet made of iron and clay. The weirdest robot ever, right? And there it is, stalking him in his sleep, and he would see this rock come down from heaven, hit the statue, the statue would explode into a million pieces, and then the rock would grow into a mountain that would cover the entire earth. It's the dream. It was, it was weird, and it troubled him. 
and he didn't know what to do about it. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar, a new king, only been doing it for two years. You can imagine his thoughts. They thought that dreams were given to you by the gods, and it had to have some significant and special meaning. And so am I the statue that's getting destroyed by a rock that would become a mountain? Am I the rock that's going to become a mountain and destroy the entire earth? What is the meaning of this? It could be good, it could be bad, but I have to know when it's really a bad omen to be given something by the gods and to not understand it. And so he calls in his advisors. This group who are collectively known as wise men, we have magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Those are all technical words that collectively we can just think of as wise men. Magicians were the most bookish of the group. They were scholars and studiers. The word literally means scribes or engravers. So they probably had a lot of scrolls and liked to write term papers. And that's what they did. Enchanters were sort of like astrologers where they would, they would look at the stars and the movement of planets and use that to determine things. Sorcerers practiced witchcraft. Chaldeans were apparently a people group who had a reputation as soothsayers. They also were likely some kind of astrologers. And so he brings in this motley crew of advisors. And, and I, can just, I can just see them coming in to stand before the king. It makes me think, I don't know if any of you remember, there's an old Nike basketball commercial called The Second Coming. And it basically consists of Kobe Bryant and LeBron James and Steve Nash and Amari Sotomayor and a bunch of other all-stars in the most ridiculous white jumpsuits you can possibly imagine, all with their collars flipped up and they're just strolling across an, in, uh, 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 an airport, basically on the runway. And the end of them has them all like standing like this and this is what I imagine this crew walking up to the king just strutting in white jumpsuits. Can't you just see it? And they're there to give the king the answer because they have the answer. That's their job. And so they've shown up. And they tell the king what any wise man would say. King, tell us a dream. We'll tell you the interpretation and everything will be good. They start off even with a little bit of flattery. That never hurt anything, right? King, live forever. And there's every reason to expect that they were actually being quite honest with this offer. They would tell him that they had this down really to a science at this point. They were professionals and they had all the tools of the trade that they would need to make this work. They had meanings for everything. And it was all cataloged in these tools. They would have had books and scrolls that were cross-referenced in order to be able to make sense of all of this. They would have had secret decoder rings and 3D glasses, protocol droids and rings of power, whatever they needed in order to know. And so they... He could have just told them, and they would have said, oh, gold means this, silver means this, bronze means this, iron, clay, rocks that fall from the sky and become mountains. One of the appendices talks all about that, wouldn't you know? And they would have known, and King Nebuchadnezzar would have felt better because inevitably they would have given him good news. Things are good, king. 
At worst, at worst, there, is, there would have been a calamity coming that he can now prepare for and overcome. Because that's what advisors did. It's how they kept their job. But King Nebuchadnezzar was not buying that. And he makes a demand of them. And he makes a demand of them. You tell me what my dream was, and I'll tell you the interpretation. Or I'm sorry, you tell me both the dream and the interpretation. And of course, they're a little bit skittish about this. Uh, King, that is not how this works. You tell us, and then we'll tell you. That's how this exchange happens. He starts to get angry. He accuses them of speaking lying and corrupt words. And finally, the Chaldeans, who seem to be the spokespeople for the group the entire time, they level with him. King, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No one. No one. And in fact, O king, I know you've only been doing this for two years. Maybe you don't realize this, but no king has ever even asked this before. This is ridiculous. It cannot be done. Only the gods would know such a thing. And their dwelling is not with flesh. King Nebuchadnezzar would have known this. These wise men were supposed to be in communication with the gods. They were supposed to be representing them. They were supposed to know these things. If they couldn't tell him something that only the gods would know, then they couldn't possibly be qualified to explain the interpretation as well. And so he gets angry. Nebuchadnezzar is true to his word. The decree goes out. Everyone must die who's a wise man, among whom are Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Now, as I mentioned before, they had already been recognized as having prodigious talent before. They were ten times better than all the other wise men, than all the other enchanters and magicians. But because they were such new graduates, they hadn't had time to ascend the ranks of wise men to be called on first when the king had an issue. And so they weren't there at this initial exchange. They're at home. And the decree goes out, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. That is the end of Act 1 of our drama the wise men have no answers in the court of the king. That's going to bring us to Act 2. Daniel and his friends pray for mercy in their home. Act 2 starts in verse 14 and goes through 23. Just read along with me. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed 
the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. The decree has gone out to kill Daniel and Arioch, the captain of the guard, comes by. Captain of the guard literally means he was the, he was the chief executioner. And he is going around collecting the wise men in order to have a public execution. That's how they would have done it. And can you imagine this man's job? We don't like it when people knock on our doors trying to sell us candy bars and wrapping paper. He comes by, knock, knock, knock. Excuse me, could you get into the car with me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill you later, but only with other people who I'm killing. So... You can ride shotgun. This would be terrible. Can you imagine the excuses that he would have got all day long? No, I, I, I just have a telescope. I'm not an astrologer, Arioch, I promise. Captain, please. I'm not a Chaldean. I just have very tan skin. He must have heard it all at this point. But there's something about how Daniel spoke to him it says in verse 14, with prudence and with discretion that caused Arioch to listen. And Daniel just wants to know, what, what is the hurry? Why, why is this happening? And Arioch explains the situation, explains what happens. And Daniel, it's the end of his conversation with Arioch. He doesn't have any kind of back and forth. He goes straight. In verse 16, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel just goes in and sets up a time, talks to the secretary. Just, I'd love to, I'd love to have a, some coffee maybe with the king. We can head down to Starbucks. Oh, what's this in reference to? Oh, his dream. I'm going to interpret it for him. I love Daniel here. I, I love anyone who can display confidence without arrogance. I'm jealous of that. And Daniel, I think, displays that perfectly. He sets up a time. You tell me, king. Tell me the time and the place, and I will show you. What's interesting is I think I know, I think the text shows how Daniel pulls off confidence without arrogance. It's because... It is not self-confidence. Confidence is in God. He goes home and he gets his friends together and they pray and they ask God for mercy. It's interesting that they don't talk about any kind of injustice here. They don't say, God, we don't deserve this. They just ask for mercy. These, these young men, we think of prophets usually as being old, gray beards. They probably would have been 17. And there they are, praying and asking God for mercy. 
And in verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. God gives them their request. If I had more time, really, if I were going to do this whole uh, chapter right, this is actually a four-act play. The three acts we have today, and the fourth act is the dream itself, where Daniel explains what it is and what it means. And so, if I could do anything I wanted, we would do what we're doing today, and then next week we would come back and look at this prayer that we're about to skip over in a little bit more detail, and then one week after that, we would talk about the dream itself. But... Well, we're not going to do that, and there's really no silver lining. Uh, We're just going to skip the prayer because it doesn't advance the plot, and it's tragic. I don't know what to say. Um, But one thing I do want to point out is that what Daniel knows about God, Daniel's, the, the, the depth of his theology completely dictates the way Daniel prays. Look at this. He recognizes God as owning wisdom and might. God changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. God gives wisdom to anyone who has it. Anyone who has knowledge, God has given to them. God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in darkness. Light dwells with him. It's a beautiful prayer. But we have to keep going. Act 3. Daniel reveals the mystery of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. 24 through 30. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. What an answer by Daniel. Daniel goes to Arioch and tells him, I have the answer. Take me to the king. Arioch takes him there. I love Arioch's response. He knows there's reward for all of this. And so he throws his hat as the ring like, maybe there's a, maybe there's a finder's fee, king. I, I found this exile among the captives of Judah. And so Nebuchadnezzar asks, so Daniel, you can tell me the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel says, king, no one can tell you the dream and the interpretation. I can just imagine Arioch at this point, uh, Daniel, uh, <laughs> What's going on? 
Daniel's making a point. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. He repeats the same concept later in in verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all of the living. Daniel is very, very careful here. I don't have any more wisdom than anyone else. I'm not able to do things that are humanly impossible. He says in verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That word mystery really becomes quite the theme in the latter half of this chapter. That mystery itself, the word, is only used 11 times in the Old Testament. Eight of them are in Daniel chapter 2. So, at least by word count, this is the most mysterious chapter in the Old Testament. It's everywhere here. And the grand point of it, what Daniel is trying to convey, and what he then proves by explaining the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, is that God is a revealer of mysteries. You see it a couple of different times. In verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. In verse 28, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. In verse 29, there's almost a new title for God. He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. And what struck me as I was studying this is how easy it is for us to not think of God as someone who reveals mysteries. But frankly, it's easy to think of him as someone who keeps secrets. I think that's probably common. I think maybe some of you have or do struggle with this kind of thinking. What what is God doing? And why, why is he doing it? Have you ever asked questions like that? Why is my life the way that it is? Why has God done this to me? Usually you don't ask questions like that when things are going well. Why is marriage so hard? Why, does my, why doesn't my spouse love me? Why aren't my kids believers? Why are my kids so disobedient? Why did that relationship resolve? Why do my parents hate me? Why can't I make enough money just to live? Why didn't things work out like they seemed they were going to? And you can ask that on a grander scale too. Why is there evil at all in the world? Why do people show up to schools and shoot children? How can, it, how can there possibly be a God who allows that to happen? Why doesn't he show himself? Why doesn't he do something? Why is he hiding like he seems to be? My guess is you felt that way sometime. And in this verse, this chapter, 
It's talking about how God reveals mysteries. And it's true. The Bible, the Bible says it, and it's true. And it, but it's one, thing to, it's one thing to say that God reveals mysteries. It's another thing to show it. And that's what I'm, hap- that's what I'm hoping to show you this morning. Because while in the Old Testament, the concept of a mystery isn't a huge theme, it's in fact a very big theme in the New Testament. The word mystery occurs, I believe, 22 times in the New Testament, but they're not nearly as concentrated as they are in the Old. Eight of the 11 appear in Daniel 2. One of the other ones appears in Daniel 4. Daniel, as it turns out, fairly mysterious. In the New Testament, that word is spread over many, many books. And it not only appears in the, in the verse that it does, but many of the surrounding verses are attempting to explain what the mystery is. A mystery in the New Testament is a, is a general term. That means something that was hidden before but has been revealed now. That's, anytime you see the word mystery in the New Testament, that's what you can think. Was hidden, now revealed. And it's interesting, in, back in verse 11, the Chaldeans recognized no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. We know God did become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is when he started making known to us all of these New Testament mysteries. And so I want, with the remainder of our time, to unpack some of what is revealed in the New Testament. Some of the mystery that was hidden and has now been shown because of what Jesus Christ has done. I want to show you that there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You can write down some of these verses. We're going to go through a number of them, so just do the best you can. Matthew, these are three that go together. Matthew 13, you can just write down that one. Matthew 13, 11, but also Mark 4 and Luke 8. So Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, all talk about, this doesn't actually use the word mystery, but it uses the word secret. The secret of the kingdom of God. You might remember Pastor Mike preaching on that. And Jesus tells his disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. What he was explaining, this was all in the heels of him. He, told his, he had just told his very first parable, the parable of the sower. And he was explaining to them how they were going to get more information. You have, you have the secret. You are able, because you are disciples of me, because you love me, because you follow after me, you get more things explained to you. That's really how parables worked. The disciples got more information. Everyone else was just sort of going to be confused by these parables. So the mystery has something to do with more knowledge for those who love God. In fact, just a few parables later in this section, Jesus explains there's a whole parable about weeds that grow up in the middle of the field and whether or not the weeds should be pulled. And that's representative of sin in the world. And one of the mysteries that comes out in this parable is that the weeds are going to remain. The weeds are going to stay until the kingdom of God comes. Evil will not be removed from the world yet. But there's a coming kingdom that will take it away. 
So the mystery has to do with this problem of evil and how God's going to deal with it eventually. He is going to, he is going to deal with it eventually, but not yet. The mystery reveals that those who love God will have more revealed to them. Romans 11, verse 25, talks about Israel's future. Israel was the people of God, and yet they were conquered by Babylon. They were sold into slavery, all because of idolatry. And God promises. He says there was a partial hardening of their heart. And the reason for that was a mystery, but the reason is that so that Gentiles can be grafted into the kingdom so that everyone else on earth can be a part of the promises of God. And in fact, it was just a partial hardening. In the future, all Israel will be saved, Romans 11 tells us. And that was a mystery. Romans 16, there are a number of verses that are like this. Romans 16, 25 identifies the mystery in conjunction with ages long past. That is to say that this mystery... All of what's being revealed in the New Testament isn't something that God decided to do on a whim, but is something that he had been moving toward all throughout history. God is working out history exactly as he wants it to be. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings, and it's true. We have a number of verses in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, and 4, 1, that connect the mystery that's revealed in the New Testament with the gospel itself, with the cross of Christ, that Christ would be God in the flesh, that he would die for mankind, that he would suffer on a cross, that we could have the righteousness of God given to us that we could be completely righteous in God's eyes through the blood of Christ was a mystery. 1 Corinthians 4 talks about that we have a stewardship in relation to this mystery, that we have a responsibility to tell other people about what's been revealed to us. Colossians 1 is one of my favorites. Again, references how this mystery is being worked out in history, but... It reveals the mystery that, has, that, that had been hidden is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that. That is a mystery worth celebrating. That as believers, by the death of Christ, he actually, he actually indwells us. He lives in us. And he empowers us to do right. He empowers us to please God. He enables us to stand righteously before God. Christ has been given to you if you're a believer. 1 Timothy 3.16, I think, goes right along with this. talks about the mystery of godliness. I think this is, this is exactly in line. We can be godly. We can be righteous. We can be holy before God because we have Christ in us, because Christ died for us. Can have a level of righteousness they would never even have dreamed of in the Old Testament. It was shown. It was shown to us. Ephesians 1 is maybe, is maybe the biggest purpose of God's mystery. About God's desire to unite all things to him on heaven and on earth. That was a mystery 
that God would be working over years, generations, ages to unite all things to himself. goes on to talk about how Jews and Gentiles would be part of the same body of Christ with Christ as the head. We would all be together and united. He would knock down dividing walls of hostility between people groups. He would redeem everyone. He's able to redeem everyone. God, God desires this unity for believers. And he showed us how that's possible through Christ. And so there's the, the, that's just a few. I think there's about 30 references all told to the mystery that God reveals in the New Testament. But it, God reveals how he's going to deal with evil. It's going to stay in the world, but it will come later. But it will be dealt with rightly later. He talks about how he's going to deal with Israel. They were hardened so that Gentiles would be saved, but, be, but all of Israel will be saved later. All of history, we don't have to wonder if things are random, but he has been working everything out through long ages according to the counsel of his will. Christ's death in our place that we should tell others that Christ now lives inside of us. All of this has been revealed to us so that we would trust God, so that we would know that He is faithful, and so we wouldn't sit around wondering what secrets God is holding. Why isn't He doing more? Why why is He hiding? God is always faithful. God will show us every mystery eventually. But for now, we can trust him. If you're not a believer, if you don't trust Christ, the big there's really only one mystery that matters. How how are you going to stand before God one day? How will you be made right with God? The New Testament reveals that you cannot be good enough, you cannot do enough nice things in order to pay, in order to make up for what you've done wrong. You need to turn away from sin and trust in Jesus as your Savior. Trust in Jesus to be good enough for you that you could be made right in front of God. This is the only mystery that matters to you if you don't trust in Christ. For the rest of us, there is, every, there is every reason to trust in Jesus now, forever. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful to you that you are a revealer of mysteries. Father, you have shown us so much, and it's easy to get wrapped up in what you haven't shown us. But God, we... We ask that you allow us to focus our hearts and our minds on everything that you have revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would trust you by his power for all of our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.